From the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this is the second Sunday in Easter, and we have just seen last week how John wrote that the women had come to the tomb and that Peter and John had raced to the tomb, but they didn't see the Lord Jesus there. And now we pick up as we are reading in John's gospel that the disciples are cowering in fear and they are hidden away because of their fear for the Jews. And therefore, we see Jesus's character revealed as he comes to these people his disciples, who are afraid and are essentially spiritually lost, if you will, although they might be regenerate, they might be truly trusting in Jesus in some sense, they certainly don't appear to be. And it is this sort of revelation of Jesus Christ that we need. After the resurrection takes place, the actions that Jesus does continue to reveal the wonder of his person and the beauty of his character. 
If you were with us during the time of Epiphany this year, we looked at how Jesus did a miracle in the external realm or in the physical realm, and that miracle that he did was intended to communicate something in the spiritual realm. That is to say that there were many levels of the miracles that Jesus was doing. Not only does this take place at the cross, but it also takes place out of the tomb. Jesus, in what he does in these days, in coming to his disciples and showing himself to them, is a manifestation of his person. That is to say, his actions externally reveal the beauty of who Jesus Christ is and the excellency and the purity and the grace of God which is at work in him. Of course, he is the Son of God, and yet at the same time, he is for us a perfect example of what it means to be a Christian. He is pouring out his love to these disciples. We know that God sent his Son into the world to die for sinners, But not only did Jesus die for sinners, he came to rescue sinners, and therefore he comes to those sinners. He doesn't wait for the sinners to come to him in this account. He goes to them into a place where they were cowering in fear, and he addresses, he makes mention of his love for them in the midst of their fear. After rising from the dead, Jesus encounters his disciples to proclaim peace to them, to, to those who had so recently abandoned him. How amazing is this sort of grace? We are just like these disciples, are we not? Though we too have heard of the resurrection, we are not immediately transformed by the simple knowledge of that fact. All of these disciples had heard from the women, and two of the disciples, Peter and John, had, heard, had seen with their eyes that the tomb was indeed empty. They had heard the fact of the resurrection, and yet what does their actions reveal? It reveals that they were not truly moved by the resurrection. This is why the church celebrates Easter over many days. In fact, uh, one of the reasons we celebrate it many days is because the scriptures, the gospels, and the epistles give us a lot of information about what Jesus did in his resurrection. He didn't just come out of the tomb on Easter. He came out of the tomb, and he went and tracked his people down. We are just like these disciples. We've heard of this resurrection, but we are not fully transformed by all that it implies. Brothers and sisters, we must continue to grow. Rather, we need Christ to come to us and to speak words of peace to us that we can be delivered from these sorts of fears and have abundant life in his name. Reading again John's gospel accounts, we realize that we far too often read the Scriptures too narrowly. You and I have, if you've been in this church for any length of time, more than a year, you've probably heard this passage. We used this passage last year in Easter. Why are we reading it again? Because we need Christ to break in again and proclaim peace again and to promise a purpose again and to give His Spirit again. We are like these disciples. We've heard of the resurrection, and yet we've not been completely transformed by the resurrection. But John wrote these words, the gospel writer, John wrote these words that we would believe upon Jesus, and in believing upon Jesus, we would have life, life to the full, abundant life, life with God, life knowing the eternal one. 
To that end, I want to look at this passage in five ways. First, the disciples who are hiding in fear, the reason for their fear, what their fear revealed about themselves. Then how Jesus comes in to declare his peace. Then he commissions to a specific purpose, a fundamentally radically important purpose, a life significance giving purpose, and then how he anoints them with power. Then for our sake in God's sovereignty and providence, Thomas's doubt as he was not present that day, and Christ's answer to that doubt. And finally, for us, what it means to believe in Christ for all. This evening of the resurrection, the disciples are cowering in fear of the Jews. Just days prior, Jesus had been arrested and publicly murdered through a conspiracy in which a false court convicted an innocent man of the greatest crime possible under the Mosaic law. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Mosaic law does not make it a law to call yourself God. The reason for this, I believe, in God's providence is he knew from his eternal plan that his son would be born and he could not be a lawbreaker. And therefore, what the Jews did, saying that Jesus calling himself the Son of God, making himself equal to God, was against the law, was actually just against their tradition. There's no law or even concept of equating someone, equating oneself with God. Now, to be sure, it would be high-handed sin for any of us to do the same, to call ourselves the Son of God. However, in the explicit letter of the law, Jesus did not break it. Nevertheless, the Jews invented a law, and they did not try him at their own hands and condemn him at their own hands as the law required. They gave him over to the Romans. In all of the civil penalties in the law, especially the ones that are capital, the community has to be the ones to put him to death. Your, first, your hand will be the first hand to lay, them on, uh, to lay on them as they go to death. If you give over your son to the elders of the city, and it's a wayward son, you have to be committed to the outcome of your judgment. And yet, the Jews let the Romans do it. They, were, they didn't want to be tainted so that they could so-called keep the Passover, and so they gave it over to the Romans. This is the political climate of fear that the disciples are living in. They know that their Lord and Master had just been murdered, though He was innocent, and they believe they are next in line. <clears throat> Verse 19, on that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. As his followers, they were likely the next to be arrested as the Jews sought to stop out this, stomp out rather, this supposed sect. Even worse, the Jews had spread a report. We know this through Matthew's gospel. The Jews had spread a report through the Roman soldiers saying that the disciples had stolen his body. Now, we don't really know if that would have been a high-handed capital crime in that day. However, if the Jews really wanted to make sure that Jesus was dead... And you've heard a rumor that it's being told that the disciples stole his body. Where do you think the Jews will go? They're going to look for you. They're going to want to take that body back. Not only were the disciples afraid of arrest and possible public shame, likely they were just afraid of the uncertainty of the entire matter. Imagine this. You thought that this was the Messiah who was going to reinstate the kingdom of David. And yet he's been killed. And although he had warned you that he was going to suffer and be dead for three days and rise on the third day, 
Nevertheless, you didn't believe the scriptures, you didn't believe his warning, and now he's just gone. Not only are they afraid of the Jews, they're just uncertain the way the wind's blowing. Everything is swirling about in Jerusalem right now. The Romans are probably searching for his body. The Jews are looking for the disciples. The crowds are beginning to, to murmur at this time. And in the next few days, you will be captured and tried and put to death, just as he was. Into, this, into the disciples' paralyzing fear, Jesus enters to proclaim his peace. In verse 19, it goes on to say that the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus here enters into the disciples' fear, moving past locked doors to stand in their midst. So many people get sidetracked and think, well, does this mean that our bodies and the resurrection will be material or physical? Brothers and sisters, that is the least important idea in this passage. The most important thing to see is that Jesus is entering into a group of people who are afraid and not following him. They are not the heroes in this story. And the point is not whether Jesus' body can transmutate or do some physical thing as, as we 21st century people are obsessed with. The point is, he can't be stopped. The significance of the doors being locked tells us much more about Christ's power to redeem than it does about the nature of his physical body or ours in the resurrection. John did not write, as he says at the end of this verse, so that you would ponder in the next age. He wrote so that you would believe upon Jesus. Jesus here is not beating around the bush or knocking on the door asking to gain entrance. We don't have time to go to Revelation 3. He stands at the door and knocks is an accusation against the church that he's writing to by the hand of John saying, I'm not even allowed in this church. It's, it's a rebuke. Jesus here jumps into the middle of a situation filled with fear. He enters into the mess and despair of hopeless disciples who are so afraid that they don't even believe the witness of their trusted sisters who had been at the tomb. Jesus, therefore, proclaims peace to those who deserve none. Three days prior, these disciples had failed to watch with him in his hour of need. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the three appointed Peter, James, and John to be with him so that he could know them and they could know him and that he could be supported by them in a human camaraderie and friendship. They failed in that hour. They did not pray with him. Brothers and sisters, it is an amazing thing to not be able to pray with your Lord and Master who you have followed for three years, for even an hour. Not only did they fail him in his hour of need, all of the disciples denied him publicly. We remember, of course, Peter's denial, but the other disciples also denied him. They also ran, and they all abandoned him at the cross. Only John makes it to the cross. Isn't that interesting? John is the only disciple that we know made it to see the crucifixion, and he did that at a distance. And then when he was invited, as Jesus gives Mary to John and John to Mary, then he comes close to the crucifixion. To these disciples, to these sort of wretched people, 
Jesus proclaims peace, showing them the marks of his crucifixion as the reason for peace. He's not just proving that he is alive. In the other gospels, he asks them if he could eat some fish to show them what sort of body he has, that it's a real body. But he proclaims peace, and then he immediately shows them, I'm the same one. This is how I obtained peace for you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors on Christ's behalf, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Why can you be reconciled to God? For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That is the only reason Jesus comes at this point in the resurrection accounts, and he proclaims to these wretched people who had just abandoned him and given him up to his own death. He says to them, I love you. Peace. Peace be with you. Earlier in in John is in the upper room, he said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, not according to merit. I'm not going to take away my peace from you when you betray me, when you offer me up, when you abandon me. No, he, he proclaims peace to those who deserve none. Jesus declares peace to them despite the memory of their own sins, that they might be able to find true rest in their souls. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced, as Paul says, that God showed him grace as a chief example of the extent of God's mercy, that Jesus does the exact same thing. Can you imagine being Peter and seeing the Lord in his resurrected glory? You would be constantly tormented with the knowledge that I gave him up. I made those hand marks appear. I'm the reason. You would would know that you had abandoned the Lord, God in the flesh, over to his death. Therefore, Jesus says peace to these brothers so that they can receive him, that they can have relationship with him. This peace that they must receive must be given to them before they can serve him. In Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? to serve the living and true God. Beyond all forms of addiction, all forms of character flaws, all sorts of missteps and false knowledge and weakness of character and timidity, perhaps the worst curse of sin is the knowledge of sin. That at the end of your day, as you go to sleep, you just mull over the terrible things that you've done over and over again in your life. Brothers and sisters, if you do not hear Jesus Christ proclaim peace to you so that your conscience can be cleansed, your conscience will never stop reminding you of your former sins. This is one of the greatest benefits of being a child of God, that you know forever and for all time, God will never bring up the memory of your sin to count it against your account. And therefore, because you know that you have peace with God, you can let your conscience be cleansed. You can let go the weight of former canceled sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. What a wonderful promise. 
Jesus, therefore, still today declares peace to his people, all those who hear his voice and will trust that he is true. Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, proclaims his word of peace today, even though he is not physically present. He does this on his behalf by ministers who speak his word, through his word, and by his spirit, presenting himself as Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 2 that he considered to know nothing among them except for Christ and Christ crucified. In Galatians, he says a very similar phrase in Galatians 3, 5, uh, excuse me, 3 verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, you whom before Christ was portrayed as crucified? He doesn't mean that he painted a picture when he was preaching in the Galatian churches. He means that through his words, he, he presented the cross through his words, and the Galatians beheld that hill in Jerusalem even through the preached word. All those, therefore, who hear and trust in Christ can know that they have peace with God in every area of life. He who said, peace be still to the wind and waves, can say that to your hurricane-filled soul. He can say that, and they will obey. In Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. After declaring his peace, Jesus then commissions these disciples with the heavenly Father's purpose. In verse 21, it says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Even as he commissions, he reiterates his peace as the grounds for their ministry. He repeats, peace be with you. And before he commissions, he reminds them, peace be with you, even as the Father. He, he first makes them understand that if they do not have this peace, then they cannot be sent. Only those who know that they have peace with God can be heralds of his peace to others. It doesn't make any sense for you to go about the world proclaiming peace with God if you do not know that you have peace with God yourself. Without knowing that we are received by God, we can never work through his grace to proclaim that reception to other people. We can't represent the Father if we're not first received by the Father, unless we first know that we are received by the Father. How can those operate outside of God's grace if they're supposed to minister God's grace? Therefore, Jesus says, peace be with you. We have to know this. We have to know that His peace is the foundation and ground for all Christian evangelism, sharing, encouragement of our brothers and sisters, praying for others, all of it must proceed by faith, knowing that we have peace with God. Therefore, Jesus commissions the disciples to represent the Father just as He had in His life and ministry. Jesus, we know from John 1, is the light of the world, and He in the Sermon on the Mount told His disciples, you are to be the lights of the world. In fact, He actually says, you are the light of the world. It's not that we are just to be the lights of the world. We are the light of the world. And if we hide that light, if our lights grow dim, the world is in darkness. He came to be the light and to proclaim the glory of the Father and to show the Father. And now the disciples are to do the same. They're to go everywhere. They're to proclaim God's word. 
and they are to represent the Father well. Just as Jesus spoke and did, so the disciples also are to speak and to do, to be representatives of the Father, not just to proclaim His message, but to so fully embody a relationship with God that they are living witnesses constantly who also open their mouth, that the grace of God which they proclaim is also at work in them. This is the calling of all Christian disciples. We too have been called by Jesus, therefore, to represent the Father in all of our life. Though we all have diverse vocations and employment, not all of us will be like these disciples. We're supposed to be like the stars of the heavens. Do you remember what God told Abraham? To go outside and to look up into the heavens and to see the stars and try to count them if you can, so shall your descendants be. We are supposed to be not the sun or the moon, but like the stars, little glimmers of light in a dark world, lighting up the world at night, shining with the radiance of Christ. Some Jesus will indeed call to preach the gospel in the nations. Some he will call to preach in his church and on the public square. Others are called simply to preach at their dinner table and in the space between their neighbor's house and their house. As an aside, brothers and sisters who have children in this congregation, you have the most glorious responsibility of daily putting Christ crucified before your children, not just in the way that you love them and discipline them, but also with your words. You cannot preach the gospel with actions alone. You must use words. Some will be called to preach in certain ways apart from others. Nevertheless, we are all called to represent the Father. Having commissioned them, therefore, with this impossible task of glorifying the Father, Jesus foreshadows the giving of the Spirit. In verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. As Jesus was about to pour forth the Spirit in the ascension and a few weeks from today or a few weeks from this account, he pledges them the promised spirit to equip them for this impossible task. Jesus not only says that they will receive the Holy Spirit, he commands them to receive the Holy Spirit. The reason they must be commanded to receive the Holy Spirit is that they cannot represent God apart from God's grace operating in their life. As they are called to do this impossible task of being a living witness to God, they must therefore have the Holy Spirit speaking as they speak. That is why they are commanded to receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells these disciples that they are going to speak for him on his behalf. When he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, and withhold the sins of any, they are withheld, he doesn't mean to say to them that they can go about optionally withholding forgiveness. This is, this is a great error of the Catholic Church as they maintain that the apostles were given the keys to the kingdom and it was only their authority. No, what Jesus is saying is that when you proclaim forgiveness, I'm proclaiming forgiveness. When you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven in heaven. With, when you withhold, that is, when you warn those of the things that lead to war with God, the things that prevent people from coming into the kingdom, when you proclaim that, it's me proclaiming that. That's what he means when he says, if you forgive, they are forgiven. If you withhold, they are withheld. 
When they preach the gospel, extending the free offer of forgiveness, Christ is presently forgiving sins. Jesus does not tell his disciples to intentionally withhold forgiveness from those who are seeking it. He rather is saying that when they proclaim his word, then Christ is proclaiming his word. We likewise need the Spirit of God to produce within us the grace to be his witnesses. Just as the disciples needed to receive the Holy Spirit, so do we. We need the Spirit's gifting for faith and unction. I'm using a very old word, and it's a word that we don't use in modern evangelical circles. But unction does not, it it doesn't imply some special magical priestly thing, extreme unction as it's told, but unction, the motivation for the Spirit of God to give one confidence to proclaim with absolute certainty that when Christ proclaims peace to the disciples in his gospels, he's proclaiming peace to his people today as those gospels are read and proclaimed. Oh, how much evangelism is stopped because of unrighteous living. We don't need the Holy Spirit just to proclaim. We need the Holy Spirit to cause us to be confident. That's what I mean by unction. There's a gift of the Holy Spirit that accords with living by the Spirit. And that gift is the knowledge of a clean conscience before God that can testify that Christ's blood really does wash away sins, not just in guilt with God, but also in guilt with conscience. Christ can make clean and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you who are signing up for this evangelism class, consider how much evangelism is stopped because of unrighteous living. Consider it. Think about the times that you have shared the gospel with that nagging voice in your conscience saying, who are you to proclaim freedom? You're not walking in freedom. This is why we need the Holy Spirit, not just to say the words, but to live out the words so that our saying breathes and that it has the aroma of the risen Christ upon our words. The most effective tool that Satan has against boldness and witnessing for God is convincing you that your holy living does not matter, that you can live as anyone and still proclaim the gospel. No, all Christians are called to put to death the old man. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions. Therefore, we need the Holy Spirit moment by moment to enable us to live righteously and to proclaim. If we are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ with power and purity, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. Fortunately, at this time, Thomas was not present when Jesus showed up. And the reason why it is fortunate for us is because John captured it in the gospel and wrote it down for our encouragement. In verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Though Thomas is not to be commended for doubting, Jesus' actions reveal the greatness of Jesus' mercy. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. As an aside here, it would be one thing if John one time mentioned the doors were locked. 
He said the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Why are the doors locked this time? He doesn't say. Now, that's an argument from silence, but I think it's a pretty loud argument. John commonly in his gospel will record things in twos. That's the secret to understand John's gospel. When John uses twos, something said twice, two different ways, or said the same way two times, he's drawing attention to it. Jesus, therefore, comes and stands among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The thing that this tells us is not whether we should put God to the test, but rather Jesus' knowledge of his people's needs. Jesus knows Thomas's doubt and comes specifically to remove that doubt. Just as days prior, the, Jews, uh, the fear of the Jews had caused them to be cowering in a room, and Jesus comes and announces peace to them, he does the exact same thing in this place to help Thomas amazingly, he knows exactly what Thomas needs to believe. He knows specifically what is going on in Thomas's mind and soul, which is necessary for him to believe. He presents himself to Thomas and commands Thomas to believe. Notice he's not appealing to Thomas. Thomas, I think you should believe. Thomas, I think it's reasonable to believe. So much of our evangelism is just presenting evidence and saying, I don't know, you use your reason and think. You evaluate. No, Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, here's the evidence. Believe me. I'm standing in your midst. I know what you need. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas needs and he commands him to believe. And upon seeing him, Thomas calls him, my Lord and my God. Notice he does not say to Jesus, my Lord, and then to the Father, my God. It is impossible to read this verse any other way, despite what the cults would do with this verse. You must see that Thomas calls Jesus God. He says, my Lord and my God, to Jesus. He worships him. He glorifies him in that moment. We should never imitate Thomas's obstinacy. Never take Thomas's actions and say, that's a good pattern. I'll do that. Even, even in so-called uh, imitating of the pattern of putting a fleece before the Lord, this is not what Thomas is doing. Thomas is not working and seeing if the Lord will bless it. No, he is saying, I will never believe unless God answers my needs. Although Jesus gives Thomas the same evidence that the other apostles saw, Jesus does not commend Thomas for disbelieving. Rather, Jesus commends those who believe by faith, by hearing his word. Therefore, we, as those who hear Christ's words, we ought to be quick to believe God and to take his word at full value. And we ought to be quick to believe God's word when our fellow disciples tell us of God's word. Thomas had heard from the other disciples, we just saw Jesus, he was just here. And yet Thomas said, unless I see for myself, I will never believe. John ends this section of the gospel explaining his purpose in writing to encourage his, believer, his hearers or his readers to believe the truth. 
In verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. (laughs) What a promise! We have a copy of what John wrote down, and it has been given to us through the centuries, and we know exactly what he wrote in almost every circumstance, and that we can read them and have belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing in Jesus Christ, we can have life. We don't just have a little bit of a promise that one day we will go to a better place, brothers and sisters. No, we have life. We have peace with God. We have a purpose that He has commissioned us to. We have the promise of power coming from the Holy Spirit. Those who hear God's Word and believe upon Christ are given fullness of life. God does not just wipe away sins. He grants entire new life by His Spirit. He transforms wretched sinners into new creations who He calls His sons and daughters. I was at the Table Fellowship Conference, and I, I was spending some time with this brother named Brandon, and Brandon, is a, he's a new guy in the Table Fellowship. He's considering joining, and we spent the whole conference together, and there was this song You've probably heard this song, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. This brother, Brandon, has just been through a very difficult season. I heard the story of how difficult it was. I don't have time to tell it, nor would it be right for me to tell it. But this brother has, a ver- has had a very difficult season. And in this moment, as we were worshiping together with this song, he turned to me and he said, Blessed adoption, the crown of all doctrine. Yes, Jesus is, of course, the crown that we love, but the crown of doctrine applied. Brothers and sisters, you were muck, and you've now been called to be a son of God or a daughter of God. Christ proclaims peace to you. He promises a purpose, and He promises His Spirit. He gives you new life. Therefore, as God's people, His grace is supposed to flow to every area of life. What do I mean by that? We must not be like the disciples that day who were hiding away in fear for the fear of the Jews. We too are tempted to do this. We hide off in our hearts in these little enclaves of darkness, thinking that God cannot see our secret sins and our shames. And we do not want Christ to come and stand in the midst of our sin. But this is the only thing that Jesus will do for his people. He will not stand outside and, and just rattle off the verses in the Old Testament, fear not, for I am your God. Be not dismayed. Jesus isn't outside the door. He comes into the middle of it. He comes into the middle of our secret sins and he turns on the light. Jesus is wanting to enter into every area of life and breathe new life into us again. Jesus has given us His Spirit to be in us as He is. He is the Holy Spirit by name and by person, and He wishes to be holy within us. Therefore, as God's people, we must receive His promised word with faith that He would supply the Spirit to us. Galatians 3.5 has become one of my favorite verses because it explains the the marriage between God's Word and God's Spirit. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so 
by works of the law or by hearing with faith. God supplies the Spirit to you, brothers and sisters, when you read His Word day by day and you read it with faith, when you sit under preaching and you hear it with faith. This is how He supplies the Spirit to us. All that Christ has done in this account to the disciples that day, He does to us today. Jesus declares His peace to you. Jesus commissions you to tell of the Father's love to the world. Jesus anoints you with the Holy Spirit to live out a new life in purity and in holiness. And Jesus commands you to behold Him. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What Jesus says to the disciples in those days, He says to us today. That's why at the beginning I said, we read these passages far too narrowly. We think this is just a historical account And yet John has helped us, saying that he wrote these things that you might believe in him, and in believing you might have life in his name. Therefore, as disciples of Christ, receiving peace with God and the power of the Spirit, let us trust upon Christ as we proclaim him in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever that just as He promised the Holy Spirit to His disciples, so also He pours out His Spirit upon His church. Father, we thank You that in His time after the resurrection that He said peace to the disciples. We pray that You would proclaim that over us this morning, that You would help us to lay down our fears and our shames of secret sin that we would allow your Son to enter into our hearts, that we would recognize our great need for his atonement, and that not only does he atone, but that he makes us new. We pray that you would encourage us this week to live lives in which we proclaim forgiveness through our words and our actions. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.